I'm delighted to announce that the National Association for Primary Education has exclusively released a video from its Primary Education Summit, Visions for the Future. This video, recorded by me, Mark Taylor, and Al Kingsley, talks about creating digital strategies for schools. This video is available for you to watch now at educationonfire.com forward slash blog, which I really hope gives you a taster of some of the amazing content that was available as part of that Primary Education Summit. That's educationonfire.com forward slash blog. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. We're on a real mission to spread the word about what we're talking about here, this idea of creative and inspiring learning, not just as an ethos, but as a kind of a real practical way of being able to think outside the box, not feel too constrained by the system that we're in. So please do share the podcast, share this message with at least one other person this week, get them to listen to this episode. Um, and let's build this community of people that are able to support children through this sort of idea of being a real child first, child focused idea of education. And then we can share all these amazing messages to see how they can fit in with the work that we're doing. Today I'm delighted to be chatting to Dr. Matthew Courtney and he specialises in using data and research to support schools and teachers as they work to improve teaching and learning. As an educator, researcher and policymaker, he focuses his efforts on building capacity in teachers and leaders to perform deep analysis of learning. When educators are faced with persistent problems of practice, he shows them how to tap into existing research literature to solve their problem and to apply research methodologies to rigorously test their solutions. Dr. Courtney is dedicated to helping the education profession fully self-actualise into the evidence-based profession that relies on deep thinking, collaboration and a joint commitment towards advancing scientific knowledge of teaching and learning in the field. I really hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Matthew Courtney. Hi Matthew, thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Fire podcast. Let's first just mention the fact that, of course, we're going to be talking about education systems, which are general, because it's all about the, the learning of children. But of course, we're either side of the pond, as it were. So give some people a sort of an idea of, of one, where you're based and two, sort of where your sort of education sort of passion stems from. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on your on your podcast here today. Um, I'm located in Kentucky in the United States. Um, Kentucky is a really diverse state, kind of in the middle of the country with um, some really dense urban population and some really, um, really rural areas as well. Um, and I am passionate about evidence-driven school improvement and thinking about how we can use data and research and evidence to improve our schools and systems at every level. And I like that because I'm a kind of a, a creative person. I'm a a thinking person, a conversationalist, and mm -hmm. it's like, as of this moment, we could do X, Y, and Z, which is all based on theory and my personal experience. Yeah. <laughs> but it's only when I chat to somebody like you and you're able to say, but, you know, this is what's happening based on the research, based on, you know, a, a group of schools or a country or you know, wherever, the, wherever the data comes from. Mm -hmm. um, so, so talk us into why that became something which was important to you. Yeah, well, I started my career as a music educator. Um, I taught elementary general music to grades kindergarten through fifth grade um, and loved every minute of that work. Uh, so I'm also a very creatively minded person uh, like you are. 
Um, but when I was in the classroom, I had challenges that no one was really able to help me with. I was the only music teacher in my building. Um, I didn't have a lot of music teacher mentors. And so when I got stuck, I didn't really have anywhere else to go except to the research literature to figure out how to solve the various problems that I have. And that for me was always a really powerful and, and useful, timely experience to be able to say, I don't know what's going on with my kids around this issue. And let me solve it on my own through the literature, because I'm not the first teacher to ever have that problem, right? Lots of teachers have had the same problems over and over for generations. Um, and so through that experience, I became really passionate about helping other educators learn how to leverage that existing information to solve their own problems in a really timely way. I love it. And that's the whole reason this podcast started was that kind of, you know, a teacher somewhere mm -hmm. not quite knowing where to get the answer for whatever that, that problem was, you know, and, and I just wanted to share some incredible information and insights and, and things that were happening in education so mm -hmm. that it didn't matter whether, like I said, they had a great mentor in their school or they weren't getting the support within the staff room they needed that in the big wide world out there there are some brilliant things happening and things that we could share from people all over the world and and, and I, I i love that sort of ability to be able to share that and and, and being able to chat to someone like i say when you've got that sense of here's the real information here we can we can sort of take that forward so in terms of the sorts of research and the sorts of things that you go into um how sort of broad is that? You know, are we talking groups of schools, countries, states, um, subject areas, that kind of thing? How do you sort of support people? Yeah, so I think it really starts with your problem of practice. What is it that you're really trying to look at and solve? And so the lens or sort of the scope of the research that we want to look at changes depending on what your setting is. If you're a classroom teacher trying to solve a, let's say, management, classroom management problem, you know, that's going to be a different scope of research. You're looking for research that was conducted in classrooms like yours and schools like yours with kids like yours. Um, if you're a system level leader or a policymaker, then you're looking at research. It could be across a broad um, scope of research across the whole country or the whole nation or the whole world. Um, and so thinking about... Um, one, like one movement we've had recently here in the United States is around evidence-based practices. There's been a big policy push to think about how do we use research really tied to the money that we're spending and how do we know we're, we're getting a return on our investment, we're spending our money in a wise way. And as a policymaker, when I helped to craft some of that policy, we really looked at literature from all over the world. We looked at policy documents and research from China, from the UK, from Australia, um, from Singapore, from countries that have kind of gotten out ahead of us on, on some of this work to see what was their experience, what was their messaging, what was the feedback they got, um, what were the challenges they faced, and how can we preemptively prepare ourselves for this new policy implementation. And when you're looking for that research, is there a, a you know a place that you go to? How do you sort of know that this research sort of has the credibility that you're looking for to give you those insights? Yeah, that's a great question. I wanna get asked all the time from educators. Um, so the best place I think to really start is with academic research journals. Those studies that have been published and vetted um, through a peer review process, um, but that's not always accessible um, for everyone because a lot of those are subscription based. You have to have access through a library, usually through a university uh, or through a government agency um, where you can access those journals. Um, so the, we have this concept called the research broker, sort of an intermediary person or agency that can help 
um, connect classroom level educators with the research directly. And so there's many organizations all over the world that do that, as well as individuals like myself. Um, if you follow me on social media, you'll know that twice a day I publish a research article um, onto my Twitter feed. Um, that's just a, a research article current within the last 18 months, published in the last 18 months, so that you can become more abreast of what's happening and follow that changing literature in real time. Um, so in that way, I become a research broker for my followers. There are organizations that do that, professional organizations. Um, our unions do that as well in a lot of areas, um, professional associations around like content areas. So your science teachers association, your music teachers association also are excellent research brokers. And I think that's really key, isn't it? It's having that lens, it's having that focus of where you want to get that information from and and, and like I say otherwise you just get into this whole field of there's so much information out mm -hmm. there <laughs> where do I start to dive in and I think that's true in so many areas of life you know I need to solve I need to find the problem or I've got the problem I want to find the solution to it and from there I can expand and you can get down any rabbit hole you like don't you um, that's the, that's the key but like I say step by step and solving those initial issues yeah I think that's right and really thinking critically about where am I getting this information who is this research broker who is this other organization do they have an agenda are they telling me the whole story um and, and then I will I feel obligated to always say the Facebook post, the Twitter post, the random Google search, that's not probably always going to be research based. Um, so always digging a little deeper into some of that. The thing you saw on Facebook may not be the whole story. Yeah, that's very <laughs> true, isn't it? Because the headline is usually the thing that gets posted. And then, exactly. like you say, the, you know, this is the high percentage of X and it was on two and a half schools in somewhere completely unrelated <laughs> to your field or your Precisely. situation. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we obviously have music in, in common. Where, where did that passion come from? And it was something I did in school and I've been fortunate enough to take it into, into being a career, both in terms of performing and, mm -hmm. and as a music teacher. Where did that start for you? Yeah, I mean, music education saved my life as a child. I started um, playing uh, trumpet in the fifth grade um in high school switched to french horn and then that became my instrument in college that i did my degree in um, and for me it was always music education always provided a safe space um, in a not always safe environment mentally emotionally safe environment in school for me um, provided a group of friends and people to who were kind of like-minded and who understood where i was coming from and then for me, the art of music, the way that um, you know you sit and play in the French horn in an orchestra in the context of that, and your one little sound becoming part of this magnificent tapestry of sound, it's something that just always kind of amazed me and, and touched me on sort of a, a spiritual and also sort of a cellular level in my body. It, it always, the way the music kind of reverberates through you. Uh, was always very important to me and so i was thrilled to have the opportunity to pass that along to uh, to a future generation of young people yeah and i think that key word there's that opportunity isn't it i mean I, I i was given exposure to it because i was in a school that for that particular time while i was there you know everyone had to learn an instrument we had the opportunity to perform in class um and then that became the gateway to a, a, a myriad of ensembles yeah. and 
you know successful people then going through to county level and, and music college and that and so you could see all those steps but it it came from that kind of real sort of innovation which wasn't necessarily the case as is music education was being cut and all that back in the, sort of mm. the 80s and things mm-hmm. so it uh, that, that opportunity is really key and i think what you 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 said so eloquently there is kind of what it gives you as as a as a musician whatever your level whenever you're starting you know that connection that the, the friends that you meet, the your relationship with yourself, your relationship to be able to express yourself with other people. And I think it's why that sort of broad curriculum so that you don't know what's going to be the right thing for the right person. But if you cut any of these things out, you, mm. you literally are sort of starving some people of, of, of an experience they never would know necessarily know about until someone else. Yeah. And there's a lot of um, grit and rigor in, in music instruction and practice and learning. It's a different learning modality. And I think that through that too, kids can learn how to sit with a problem, how to take multiple stabs at a problem, to run up against a a challenge multiple times and eventually overcome that challenge. Because that's what you do when you practice an instrument. You may play two or three measures of of a piece over and over and over, 100, 200 times before you get it right. And, you know, we need to learn and teach kids how to transfer that rigor and grit into their math lessons, into their statistics classes, into their English classes. Um, and, and really thinking about how do we um, leverage that grit and rigor in a way that kids can build that as a skill. And I think music and arts education in general is a great way to do that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it, it, there's something about that knowing that if I put the work in here, I will get the reward. Like you mm. say, it might be 200 times, but I know that actually there's a point. And, and, and the more times you do that, the more you recognize that journey. Yeah. Um, and it's certainly one of the things I, I mentioned with my pupils. It's kind of like, you know this now, you know, this piece, which you can play with your eyes closed now, we were having this conversation about, and you did all these things, and then we moved to another piece, and another piece, and your level's gone up, and I said, and I have exactly the same thing, I get given a piece of music sometimes, and I'm like, there's a lot of notes here, this is going to take me a bit of a while, but I have the structure and the understanding, the same as it is for you that we're doing now in your lesson, but I, I, I know I can step into it, I can make an informed decision about how long it might take, and what I need to put in, but the art of it as you say is something which you recognize and it's certainly true i i use that in many other facets of my life as well Mm -hmm. yeah and as a researcher that helps me too when i think about um doing my own research and trying to study educational phenomena in my setting um, because you got to think about what is the right design for this research study how long is it going to take you know that duration of, of um activity is something that in our society, we lose the ability to kind of do, but a good research study might take a year, it might take two years, it might take 20 years. And to be able to carry through with something, that's another whole other skill um, and mentality that I think we're, we're losing in this sort of fast paced social media world. Yeah, and, and I think that's a great point in terms of, of how we show up in the world. I mean, the thing I love about the podcast is that people who may have seen you like say through your twitter feed or something like that they may not have heard your voice they don't get some of these little sort of background information which kind of you get that that kind of relationship to so so talk me through sort of how that sort of rainbow of your life kind of works in terms of the social media in terms of why you then sort of jumped into the into the writing the book and 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 that process and then like say sort of chatting to people on podcasts and that kind of thing you know how all these sorts of things sort of create you know um matthew as you are today and what you're trying Mm -hmm. to then support people with well it all started to my experience as a classroom teacher um and i try to harken back to that and stay as as close to the classroom as I can, even though I'm not in that teaching role today. Um, When I was teaching, um, we 
at one point in our in my career, we had, had brought in a researcher and an author to talk to us about writer's workshop. And the whole school, every teacher was supposed to be incorporating elements of writer's workshop into their instruction. And as I've said, I believe music is really a great conduit to other things. And so I'm happy to teach writer's workshop in my classroom and think about how those elements can become part of a music education. And part of our training, we got a one-on-one -on -one session with this researcher and author. And I remember going to her office and sitting down and saying, okay, I'm the music teacher. How do I adapt this? Help me figure this out. And she literally looked at me and said, I don't know. And I said, what do, you, what do you mean you don't know? Like, we paid you all this money. You're in residence here for three weeks. Like, what do you mean you don't know how to help me? And she said, well, I just, I'm, I know how to do content area. And music's not a content area. I don't know how to help you. And so I was, I left that meeting and I was like, there, this is, this doesn't make any sense. And so I went to the research literature and I was like, okay, I'm going to figure this out on my own. And I figured out how to embed writer's workshop into my music classroom. I then wrote about that and published it in my state's um, music educator magazine. And that was really sort of the aha moment for me, because I realized then that there really is all of this research literature that we can tap into to solve our own problems. And then step two of that is we have to share that information with our peers and colleagues. And so um, over a couple, after a couple of years, my school was consolidated and I moved to the nonprofit sector where that's all that I did was focus on how do we help teachers solve their own problems and share their solutions um, out with the world. And so that's the journey that I've been on. Um, and it's really thinking about building that capacity in our classroom level teaching workforce and thinking about professional responsibility to solve problems and then share those solutions. Um, along that journey, you mentioned my book, Exploratory Data Analysis in the Classroom. Um, I realized that there was a big skill gap in our education workforce where they were able to collect data. They were maybe able to look at averages and compare some averages or make student groups and kind of compare that a little, but they didn't really have the deep skill set, the deep data analysis skill set to really understand their problems. And so exploratory data analysis is the technique that I teach educators today. Um, it's an open-ended and kind of iterative process of looking at data. It's process-oriented over theory-oriented, so it's a little more um, friendly and practitioner-driven than sort of that confirmatory analysis that a lot of us learned in grad school. Um, and that, for me, is just an extension of that research passion, thinking about, I want to give you these skills so that you can understand what's happening in your classroom and solve your problems faster. And I love that sort of, well, the multifaceted idea, um, but multifaceted in, in many ways. It's like, say, I know I need to find some information. <clears throat> so here we are. Here's the information. But now I need to know how to analyze it and put it into practice. And, you know, that sense, I know I'm a passionate educator. I've got a career in the classroom doing music. And then the skill set and the understanding then takes you in a different direction and you morph and you kind of do that. But I, I just love the fact that, within that there's kind of a common thread for so many people and it's just a question of walking that line and opening the you know walking through the door when, when these things get get sort of um given to you as an opportunity and and being able to be flexible with that and i think there's something very very powerful about how we we do that as humans generally without that sort of fear set of it has to look a certain way and yeah. and i guess I don't know, maybe that kind of area of sort of, uh, of, of data and analysis and, and understanding kind of gives you a, a kind of a strength in terms of knowing that, that there's always an answer and I can always find the way to know where I'm heading. 
Yeah, I always say that an evidence-informed educator is an empowered educator. When you can point to a classroom activity, a teaching strategy, an assignment, and say, I'm doing this, and here are the 12 reasons why it looks like this. One of the things that I, I did in my classroom when I was teaching also found the solution through the research. I was having a hard time with sharpened pencils. Such a simple thing, but when you think about teaching 200 kids a day in a music classroom where kids are rotating in and out and in and out and in and out, sharpened pencils is a huge deal and a huge classroom management challenge. And so um, part of that writer's workshop research that I did, um, I learned about some advantages of teaching kids to write in pen and using different kinds of symbols instead of erasing or scratching out using different kinds of symbols to make corrections. And so I threw all my pencils away. I bought cheap, like 10 pens for 99 cents. I bought like a hundred of them, put them in a box in my room. And that's what my kids wrote with. And when we did music compositions, that's what we wrote with. And we created our own editing symbols. And what that allowed me to do as an educator was to see their thinking in real time. Instead of erasing that music note that they thought they got wrong, they used a symbol. And we would skip that measure and start with the next one. But that symbol helped me understand the mistake that they made, how they caught that mistake. And so that was an evidence-based decision that empowered me as a teacher to first solve a classroom management problem that was really distracting and taking a lot of my time, um, but also to learn more about my kids and then to make better informed lessons down the road because I could see, oh, 12 out of 20 kids in this class use this, this correction symbol. I need to reteach that concept because about over half of them missed that. I love it. And you can really see how below was said about the music. I, I can see this path working and and I can see it in like say so many different parts of any given classroom, whether it's like say management or or whether you're whatever you're trying to get across. And and, and there's something very warmth about with a lot of warmth about that, I think, because it, it just kind of fills me with confidence in, in terms of <laughs> of it's tried and trusted. And 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 just talk me a little bit into the into what works and what doesn't work and how you that's based on 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 the research and stuff that you you can find as well because there, there must be things that work for some people but not for everybody so how do you mm. sort of filter through then what you want to take into your classroom or, or is it indeed just a bit of trial and error well that's where practitioner experience really matters and being able to recognize that these are my kids this is what i know about my room and my classroom and my instruction and my style and being able to to synthesize from the literature what you think is going to work for you and what you think uh, might be a challenge i think as we transition and start thinking about more evidence-informed education and teaching we really need to think about sort of how we individualize um, instruction, but also how we individualize professional development, individualize lesson planning and protocols. Um, we sort of have a habit, at least here in the United States, where all the fifth grade teachers in a building are teaching the same lesson on the same day in the same way. And that's really not a very evidence-informed uh, method of instruction because we all have different skill sets. We all have different styles and preferences. And teaching should be fun and engaging. If teaching isn't fun, learning isn't fun. Um, and so being able to give practitioners the freedom, that sort of intellectual and educational freedom to say, you know, I know that this is an evidence-based practice, but this over here, this is also an evidence-based practice. And I think it's gonna work better for me and my kids. And I'm gonna incorporate this one. And you fifth grade teacher across the hall, do your thing. You do the evidence-based practice that works for you. This one I think is gonna work better for me and for my kids. And do you think it kind of gives you 
a more structured first conversation like say if you have to take this maybe to your principal or senior leadership team here or whatever you're sort of you're sort of saying i'd like to make a tweak i'd like to do something slightly different and i can show you why there's there's a credibility and a more serious conversation that happens off the bat as it were rather than just kind of oh they're just trying to change something there i mean what's your thoughts on that Absolutely. I really think it empowers you to advocate better for what's happening in your classroom and what's best for your students. And I see this trickling all the way up into policy at the states and federal level, Um, being able to go to legislatures. I work now with a lot of legislators and being able to go in and say that we want to make this decision or we want to encourage you to take this policy stance. And here's why. Here's what the research says about that. And yes, this might be painful. Yes, this might be a change that um, is... um, is unpopular at first, but we really know that this is the direction we need to go. So at every level, we can leverage that research and that data to say, these are the things that we know that work, and this is the direction we need to start pushing the system in. I like to say that um, evidence-informed educators also accelerate learning. Um, There's this really cool phenomena that we see in the research literature about teacher research use that um, teachers with more experience, they sort of become accidentally evidence-based practitioners because teaching is like doing 100 science experiments every day. It's so much trial and error and they innovate and they try something and then they go, well, that didn't work. And then they kind of retweak it and retool it and try it again. And I mean, that is science, right? That is the scientific method being lived out in real life in real time. So what if we could take those 20-year teachers who have all of this self-created evidence-based specialty and teach those first, second, third-year teachers all those evidence-based skills that the 20-year teacher learned on their own over 20 years? Where is that second, third grade or third-year teacher going to be in 20 years once they've, if they can start there, right, and then they can spend 20 years innovating. That's how we push the profession forward. That's how we professionalize teaching across the globe, and we improve teaching and learning for for all of our kids. And I guess that must work. You sort of mentioned policy level there before as well, because I know certainly one of the things that I've heard quite a lot um, in my time in schools is that sense of, oh, this is the new thing we're going to do. And then some older teachers saying, yeah, we kind of did that 20 or 30 mm-hmm. years ago and it didn't work then and we changed it to this. And, and, and like you say, that kind of experience and understanding of, um, um, of course, at that sort of level, it needs to be a properly structured um, conversation to do it. But you would think, like I say, if we're trying to professionalize and move forward each time, just because a new idea, which is an old idea repackaged comes in, isn't necessarily moving it forward. Yeah. Like say, it's going around the same hamster wheel. Yeah, teachers and also like bureaucrats and policymakers often talk about how education policy swings on a pendulum. And so we go sort of from a really sort of loosey-goosey, do-your-own-thing kind of profession to a really structured, very scripted kind of profession, and we're always kind of somewhere on this pendulum. And really, I think with evidence and thoughtful data use, we can stop the pendulum in the middle and push it in a third direction and really make intentional, thoughtful decisions um, there's always sort of this this feeling in education that if you just kind of duck down and let the wave go over you, eventually this um, thing that you like or don't like will just pass over and you'll be on to the next wave. Um, and I think that's really unfortunate that we've got a lot of, really, I would say the majority of our profession are these really skilled, thoughtful, highly educated professionals who are just kind of waiting for the next thing to move on, when really they could be empowered by that research and evidence to say no. 
we're stopping this now. We're going in this direction. We're making an intentional decision. We're not going to just ride the pendulum wave. I think that's so well put. And it's, and it's a really easy way to, like say, to see how education can change with real purpose. And I, and I think, I think the, the more I have these conversations with people, the more I realize that, you know, even if there was someone who could change the system to make it better in inverted commas, that's better in somebody's eyes. And that may not be the same for everybody. Yeah. Whereas what we're talking about here is, you know, the conversation I'm having, the decision I'm having based on my experience and my professionalism and my understanding is going to change the environment and the system for me and the people around me. But as we're talking today, but with real structure and understanding and research to do that as well. And that kind of concept, you can see not only sort of changing the profession for, for the better, but it can morph, first of all, in a very sort of um, organic and sort of personal way with the people around you, but could even get that sort of tidal wave movement as more and more people see how that works. And it's not, it now, now needs to look like this. It needs, the, the process can work like this and you can adapt it because I'd like say every person, every school, every, every child is different. And when we can make it work and that sort of personalized learning but in, in, a, in a kind of a mass structured way, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah. And what works in, in even in one school year might not work with the next group of kids the next year, um, because we we know that over time, you know, kids change and media changes and their exposure changes. And so really having that flexibility to be able to say, this is where my kids are right now. This is what I know from the research about how to reach this group of kids today. This is what I need to do, regardless of what the where, where we are on the pendulum, right? We're just going to make the right decision for the kids in front of me right now. I always like to also think about the medical profession. You know, the medical profession is an evidence-informed, evidence-based profession. And your doctor looks at you and says, I'm going to treat the patient in front of me right now. And there are rules and there are guidelines and there are processes but the traditional or standard treatment might not be appropriate for you. And your doctor has the autonomy and the authority and access to the information to say, well, you know, this patient also has this condition and this condition and this condition or this consideration or this religious preference or what have you. So we're not going to use the standard treatment. We're going to use this other treatment over here. And I know this other treatment works for people in this person's situation. That's how we should be treating education as well. Yeah. And I think that, perception of of what teachers should and could be allowed to do like you say with that with that sort of professional hat on is mm -hmm. you know you know you know best in in, in so many ways and like I say it's not an either or you know like I say the medical profession has procedures they can't just do what they like but yeah the way it works hand in hand with like I say the system and the professionalism seems to you know, there's a framework there. I don't quite see necessarily why it doesn't work in the teaching profession as well, but I, I guess that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah, <well>. for sure. <laughs> um, I'm always fascinated in terms of people that are involved in education and certainly have sort of progressed through in different ways. Is there a teacher or an education experience um, that you've had that's kind of obviously had an impact on your life, but maybe also how that's kind of sort of informed what you're doing now and how you go about it? Yeah, so um, when I was a student and, and a child, um, I suffered from daily panic attacks um, and had some really severe anxiety and really some, some days couldn't even physically get to school because my anxiety and panic attacks were so severe. Um, and that really changed the way that I interacted with the school system as a student. 
Um, and as a student, the school system wasn't really working for me. It, it wasn't providing me the resources and support that I needed, the flexibility that I needed um, in order to be able to tend to my mental health um, and also be successful in the classroom. And so that's something now, as I think about um, policy and research and how do we support teachers in the classroom today, something that always kind of rings true in the back of my mind is how are we making sure that the decisions we make really are best for every single student in our classroom and knowing that you don't even know what's going on. Um, my teachers didn't know I was having panic attacks. That wasn't something that I um, told them. Um, but having the understanding that that those kinds of at-home experiences carry into the classroom, they impact teaching and learning and helping teachers to be um, informed enough about what's going on in students' classrooms around um, how we can we can make a safer, more welcoming learning environment. That's something that's really important to me and that carries through in all of my work. Yeah, I love that because then then you can kind of feel where well, you can see the tapestry of your life, but also where those threads of passion come from and understanding. Mm -hmm. And I think then then you feel like every experience, good, bad or indifferent, however you perceive that to be. And I know that's not necessarily a particularly well put way of doing it, but it, but it, it kind of you just kind of see you know, this this experience has helped me do this and it's made me an understanding of something and how I want to go forward. And without that, maybe, you know, you don't get to be the, the educator you are today with helping so yeah. many people. So, but yeah, I really understand that. Yeah. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Or maybe is there a piece of advice you'd now give yourself looking back as a, uh, a slightly older Matthew to, <laughs> to, to your younger self? Yeah. So when I first started teaching, um, I have always been really close to my fourth grade uh, teacher. And when I first started teaching, she what, called me maybe, I don't know, two or three days before my first day in the classroom and um, was so excited that I was also becoming a teacher. And she said, uh, she told me at the time, she said, you're gonna have a challenging first couple of weeks because the kids are gonna push you and test you. They know that you're a new teacher. And she said, the best piece of advice, don't chase a kid. She said, when you've got classroom management happening, you've got issues happening, behaviors happening, don't chase a kid. You stand your ground and those kids come to you. And um, my first day in the classroom with kids, I had a student pick up a potted plant off of my desk and throw it across the classroom right at my head. Um, and uh, I kind of dodged it, it hit the wall and dirt and clay went everywhere. And in the back of my head, I just heard Miss Isaac saying, don't chase a kid. And so I stood there and I said, I need you to come and talk to me about what just happened. And we're not moving on with class until you do. And I just stood there and it was a long, felt like a long, probably, I don't know, 30, 45 seconds, felt like an hour. Uh, and he came to me, we had a conversation, he received the prescribed consequence at the time and we continued with class. Um, and I just think now, like, that was such good advice because that situation could have escalated so fast. That could have ended up so differently for both myself as a new educator, but also for that child um, and the consequences that child could have received had I escalated that situation, um, how those consequences compound over time. So that was the best advice I ever received. Don't chase a kid. I love that. 
I love it. And and it's something which I find fascinating in terms of giving advice or or receiving advice is that you don't know where it's necessarily going to come in. And of course, in that scenario, you know, you had someone that you respected and yeah. you were you were heading in in like say quite shortly into that scenario. But I think I think sometimes if it's really important and you feel that need to share or you want to kind of help it might not be the thing that happens today or tomorrow, but it might be next week or it might be in, like say, the first little while of a, of a new journey if you're a teacher. Um, because then, like I say, that's made such a massive impact on your life and your ability mm. to teach and the child as well. And, uh, and, I, and I just think if you'd never heard it, then you couldn't use it. So sometimes, you know, even having advice in advance of where you're going to be able to sort of take the most of it is really important too. Mm. And it didn't make sense to me at the time. So I'm glad that she did that and gave me that piece of advice because it made sense when I needed it. It was right there in the back yep. of my head. Yeah. And you need that sometimes. It needs to be, it needs to be hard and sharp sometimes, doesn't mm. it? Because you like to say, there's a million things happening in a moment, but if there's just something which just rushes into your mind and you go, I now know what to do, even if it's just by rote or I've I've heard it and I'm going to say it like this. The rest of it kind of takes care of itself sometimes. Mm, yeah, yeah. I'm sure there are many people listening going, "That's definitely something I can <laughs> I can be aware of." Um, we know that resources are obviously really important for people, and this could be professional or, or personal. But is there something which has had a big impact? And it could be a podcast, a book, a video, song, film, mm. anything. But something you'd like to share. I think um, for me, the most powerful resource of my career has been my engagement with the teachers associations and teachers unions. Um, really learning, I, I really early in my career engaged deeply with our National Education Association. That's our largest teachers union here in the United States, um, the NEA. And I engaged very deeply with them early on and they showed me a world beyond my classroom that I didn't otherwise have access to. They taught me about federal policy um, and how federal policy trickles down and becomes state policy and how that trickles down to become building policy and eventually classroom practice. They taught me how to use my voice to advocate for policy changes in a productive and healthy way. Um, not every advocate knows how to do that, right? We have a lot of unhealthy, uh, I just like to say screaming into the microphone advocates. That's not a very effective advocacy pathway. And my, the National Education Association taught me how to do that. They offered fellowships that I participated in that taught me about um, what teaching is like in other parts of my country. The United States is a huge country and very diverse. Um, we have locations in the United States that still have one-room schoolhouses because they're so rural, they don't need a second classroom. They couldn't they couldn't fill a second classroom. Um, and then we have dense urban areas that are have you know 40 kids in a room and kids are having to like sit on the top of bookshelves because there aren't even enough desks. And that diversity of perspective that they provided me really shaped me as an early educator. It continues to shape me today. Um, so I think back to your advice question, another piece of advice, engage deeply in your unions and professional associations. If you're in the United States, National Education Association is where it's at. Join that organization, engage in that organization. Um, it's like a gym membership. You only get out of it what you put in, but you can get a lot out of it. Yeah, I love that. And I love the way it ties into that of what we were talking before in terms of every situation is different. And and so, you know, like I say, with research, with understanding, with information, you can take that into your your one classroom rural school as mm -hmm. opposed to, like you say, 40 kids sitting on, on benches or, or whatever, <laughs> bookshelves, yeah. whatever, it, whatever it is, because then, like I say, you know where that help and advice is and you're informed in, in the ways that you can do it. And, mm. uh, and I think community, wherever that comes, is, is such a key. Such yeah, certainly. Factor. 
So to round off, obviously the acronym FIRE is important to us here at Education on Fire. And by that, I mean feedback, inspiration, resilience, and empowerment. So is there, what's the, well, what's the first thing that jumps out, out at you about those words or anything which you think is the, is the thing would you'd hang your hat on if you had to make a choice? Hmm. Well, I think that um, I, I just, feedback is so important to me at every level. And thinking about how do we set up opportunities to give meaningful feedback to students, but also how do we set up opportunities to receive meaningful feedback ourselves, feedback from our students, from our administrators, from the parents and families with whom we engage, um, from our, our peers and colleagues. Continuous improvement is for everyone and for every level. So thinking about, you know, I'm here today to talk about evidence-informed continuous improvement in schools, but even how do I improve my own self, my own teaching? How do I receive feedback in a way that is unemotional, that is um, beneficial to me? How do I interpret that feedback and apply it into my life? Um, that, that's something that's really important to me and something that I'm always thinking about. Um, if you ever visit my website, there's little survey links all over it where I'm asking, give me feedback on, on this website. How do I make these tools better and more accessible to you? Um, so yeah, feedback is a, a huge key, I think, to success in school and in life. I completely agree. And I think certainly the ability to, to receive it in a positive and like I say, non-emotional way I think is is so important and I think that's a skill and I yeah. think that comes from the people that have sort of created the environment for that but also something that we can work on within ourselves and uh, yeah there's definitely a book there somewhere I'm sure <laughs> um, but yeah so such an important thing and you mentioned your website there tell people where they can they can find out more and, and, and find out everything about you yeah the best way to find out more about me is to visit my website is matthewbcourtney.com um, if you go to the website on the top, there's a tab that says the repository, and this is a spot where I put all kinds of free resources for educators, um, ebooks and data analysis tools and tutorial videos and webinars and all of that lives in my repository. Um, and so go engage with those resources. And um, I also write a blog that you can find on my website where I write weekly about continuous improvement, evidence-informed continuous improvement topics. Um, please contact me through that. I would love to connect with all of your listeners. Fantastic. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for your time and, and your insights as well. I, I just, I love your journey and I, I love your, I love your warmth and your breadth of, of one, what you're trying to do, but based on all of those experiences that you've had, which I think, uh, yeah, makes you uniquely placed to be able to help so many people. So yeah, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community. With over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.